Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, Episode 37, Apollo Program Flight 5, Apollo 11, Part 1, Contact Light. Last time, we took a brief departure from our historical narrative so we could see for ourselves just what it takes to land on the moon. I don't know about you, but at least in the abstract, I find it actually to be a lot more straightforward than might be guessed. Lower your orbit, turn on the engine, keep an eye on the radar, and set it down nice and gently. Of course, the real world isn't theory. The real world is messy and dirty, and the computers never, ever work the way you want them to. Today, we won't just talk about it in the abstract. We'll see how the first moon landing was actually accomplished. That's because today, we will be talking about Apollo 11, the first piloted landing on the moon. In a lot of ways, Apollo 11 was actually the least interesting of the six landings, As the only G-type mission, its only objective was to safely land on the moon and get home in one piece. It wasn't aiming for extreme precision, a lengthy stay, or bounty of science. As we've seen over the previous flights, much of the space program was a struggle between the engineers who wanted to keep things simple and the scientists who wanted to gather interesting data. Apollo 11 is definitely a mission where the engineers won. Despite landing robots on the surface and flying humans to within only a few miles, much was still unknown about the moon. So it was best to keep things as simple as possible. But you know what? It was the first, and that counts for a lot. The target landing zone was in the Sea of Tranquility, one of several large mares, Latin for sea or ocean, that are easily visible as large dark splotches on the side of the moon facing the Earth. It is essentially a huge, featureless plain. Of course, there are small craters and boulders all over the place, but the hope was to find something flat and boring so the crew could just focus on a safe landing and return. Flying this historic mission would be a crew composed entirely of spaceflight veterans. Serving as commander would be Gemini 8 command pilot Neil Armstrong. Armstrong's experience with the X-15 and his demonstrated ability to stay calm and collected in the face of a crisis during Gemini 8's severe spin made him the perfect choice for the first landing attempt. He was a focused and talented pilot who could be counted on to not get flustered. Joining him on the journey to the surface would be Lunar Module Pilot Buzz Aldrin. An expert in orbital rendezvous, Aldrin had previously flown as the pilot of Gemini 12. He successfully demonstrated new techniques for extravehicular activity, a problem that had plagued NASA throughout Project Gemini. Also, this is completely unrelated, but since the Gemini 12 episode aired, I met Buzz Aldrin in person at a conference about sending humans to Mars, and holy crap, I met Buzz Aldrin. Moving on. Rounding out the crew was Command Module Pilot Mike Collins. Collins was also a Gemini vet, having performed one of the project's more trouble-free EVAs as part of Gemini 10. Collins was originally going to be the CMP on Apollo 8, but had to be removed due to a bone spur on his spine that required surgery. In the interest of fairness to Collins, among other reasons, he was placed on the first crew possible after recovery, which wound up being Apollo 11. This caused a bit of crew shuffling, since Buzz Aldrin was originally going to be the CMP for Eleven, with Fred Hayes serving as LMP. Aldrin had some LMP training experience already, so he was shifted into the LMP role, and Hayes was moved to the backup crew, lining him up for a flight on Apollo 14. It's really fascinating tracking the ever-shifting Apollo crew assignments, and how relatively minor events could have major impacts on the history of spaceflight. 
With that in mind, it's worth mentioning that nowhere was it explicitly decided that this crew would be the first to attempt a piloted landing. There's a theory kicking around that Neil Armstrong was chosen because he was a civilian, and selecting him for the first landing would not give any of the military branches bragging rights. But if things had gone worse than expected on Apollo 7, 8, or 9, that honor could have easily gone to the crew of Apollo 12. Or had NASA fallen behind schedule and decided to roll the dice on an earlier mission, it could have been Tom Stafford's crew in Apollo 10. Astronaut boss and director of flight crew operations Deke Slayton said that he explicitly tried not to assign specific crews to specific missions. His preferred method was to train a solid group of astronauts with the sufficient experience to be able to take on any Apollo mission. So how was it that the crew of Apollo 11 became some of the most famous astronauts in history? They were skilled, they were experienced, and they were lucky. Like all crews, the crew of Apollo 11 underwent extensive training in the months and years leading up to their mission. All three men had flown in space before, but none had flown on Apollo, which had its own unique challenges. For one thing, Gemini didn't have a lander. To help with that, engineers developed one of the riskiest and most fascinating pieces of training equipment used in the build-up to the landing, the Lunar Landing Training Vehicle, or LLTV. Every Apollo astronaut was a pilot, and most were among the best in the world, but the lunar module did not fly like an airplane. It didn't really fly like anything that had come before, actually. The closest existing comparison would be a helicopter. Both were vertical takeoff and landing vehicles that were largely controlled by gimbling a single large thrust vector. For the LEM, it was the descent engine. For a helicopter, it would be the rotating blades. Everyone who landed on the moon trained as a helicopter pilot, but even that wasn't enough. Enter the LLTV. If you thought the LEM was a strange and gangly-looking vehicle, be sure to check out the LLTV. It was commonly known as the Flying Bedstead due to the appearance of its metal lattice structure. At the center of the LLTV was a large jet engine that was rigged to always point straight down along a vertical vector, no matter the gyrations of the structure around it. Its job was to simply keep running and cancel out five-sixths of the weight of the LLTV, simulating lunar gravity. Positioned around the vehicle were small hydrogen peroxide rockets used to approximate the descent engine and attitude control thrusters of a lunar module. At the front of this contraption sat the pilot. The real LEM didn't have seats, but since no sane person would suggest flying the LLTV without a quick exit plan, the pilot sat on an ejection seat. As crazy as this setup was, it worked. All of the Apollo commanders swore by it, and Armstrong credits the success of the Apollo 11 landing to his extensive training with the LLTV. That's especially high praise when you consider that Armstrong was nearly killed in the LLTV's direct predecessor, the Lunar Landing Research Vehicle, or LLRV. During one of his many flights, the LLRV began to buck the pilot, suddenly out of control. From only a couple hundred feet above the desert, Armstrong activated the ejection seat and landed seconds later under his parachute. Safe, if perhaps a bit sore from the 16G ride. The LLRV and the LLTV are some of the myriad unique critical training tools used throughout the Apollo program. They were also among a finite pool of training tools that needed to be shared among all of the astronauts. With the rapid pace of missions planned for the build-up to landing, time on the training equipment was at a premium. Even the 11 crew had to fight for simulator time, since the 9 and 10 crews took priority as their missions came up. 
It's easy to lose track, but Apollo 11's liftoff date was less than two months after that of Apollo 10's. With the end of the decade looming, there was no time to waste between flights. When that launch date finally arrived, I imagine it must have been surreal for all involved. It was time at last to begin the final leg of the journey. On Wednesday, July 16th, 1969, dawn broke over an expectant Florida. It was hot and muggy, and traffic snarled the entire area surrounding Cape Canaveral as hundreds of thousands of people tried to find a spot to watch. In attendance were over a thousand reporters for print, television, and radio, photographers, protesters, and VIPs from all around the globe. Also present were NASA luminaries who had been involved from the start. Among many others, Bob Gilruth, head of the Space Task Group, which got the ball rolling on Project Mercury. Werner von Braun, who had for decades dreamed of using the power of rocketry to send humans to other worlds, not weapons to other countries. Deke Slayton, chosen as an astronaut in 1959, but fated to remain grounded while his colleagues flew. James Webb, the initially unwilling administrator who guided NASA on its course to the moon. Elsewhere, others equally committed were there only in spirit as they manned their consoles across the country, ready to spring into action if their expertise were called upon. At four in the morning, Deke Slayton woke the crew. They showered, had a final medical check, and sat down for the traditional astronaut breakfast, joined by Slayton and Bill Anders, who was serving as backup command module pilot. The crew, though aware of the historic nature of their mission, were casual and matter-of-fact. Just another day on the job. They suited up, waved to the reporters, and boarded the van to the pad. Once there, they were met by trusty pad leader Gunter Vent, who helped them into the spacecraft. Since Buzz Aldrin would be sitting in the center seat, he had a few minutes to himself as Armstrong and Collins settled into the left and right seats. Standing in the white room, over 300 feet above the mobile launch platform, isolated from the muggy Florida atmosphere in his suit, he looked out over the coast. He said that while he couldn't see the hundreds of thousands of people out there, he could sense their presence. After a few moments alone with his thoughts, Aldrin too stepped into the spacecraft. The hatch was sealed, and the pad crew departed. At 9.32 a.m., for the sixth time, a Saturn V roared to life, shattering the morning stillness. Taking 12 seconds to clear the tower, it seemed to crawl off of the pad. The flight proceeded smoothly, with no surprises. Even the pesky pogo oscillation seemed to have finally been tamed, with the crew reporting a smooth ride all the way. Once on orbit, the crew and mission control checked all aspects of their vehicle. Everything looked perfect. Go for TLI. The J-2 engine at the back of the S-4B fired again, and before long, the crew of Apollo 11 were on their way to the moon. Shortly after TLI, the CSM separated from the S-4B and prepared to retrieve the LEM. Now two separate vehicles, they needed radio call signs. NASA Public Relations had chafed at the spacecraft names chosen for Apollo 9 and 10, which they deemed to be frivolous. So while the crew was still allowed to name their vehicles, the PR people finally won. The Apollo 11 crew had to choose something a little more distinguished. For the command module, Columbia a nod to the Jules Verne classic novel From the Earth to the Moon. For the lunar module, Eagle, a dignified symbol of flight and one that was also depicted on the mission patch holding an olive branch in its talons to indicate the peaceful nature of the mission. It's also worth noting that the patch does not bear the name of the crew members. This was bigger than any three men. 
After the successful translunar injection, Columbia and Eagle were on their way to the moon. The crew settled in for what proved to be three uneventful days. On the trip out, Houston read up news reports, including how the flight was being covered around the world. Even the Soviet press couldn't help but print stories about the mission. Controllers on the ground got a kick out of the Soviets calling Mission Commander Armstrong the czar of the mission. Even the crew got in on the fun. When Capcom called up for Armstrong, Collins answered that uh, the czar was brushing his teeth, and he was filling in. Like the previous flights, the onboard color television camera was put to good use. The resulting broadcasts were viewed by millions upon millions of people on Earth. Humans had been to the moon before, but more than the previous two missions, it seemed Columbia and Eagle carried more than just its three occupants along for the ride. Once again, an Apollo stack slipped behind the moon, fired the service propulsion system for several long minutes, and entered lunar orbit. The crew inspected Eagle, prepared for the long day tomorrow, and tried to rest. The flight surgeon reported that their sleep was more fitful than during the previous rest periods. Seems even legends can get nervous. July 20th, 1969. This was the day. The crew awoke and prepared for the long day ahead. First, they suited up and prepared for the undocking. In an effort to stay slightly ahead of schedule, they had left the docking probe in the command module, leaving the tunnel clear and one shore off of the list. Armstrong and Aldrin boarded the Eagle, and Collins buttoned up the hatch. Thirteen lunar revolutions after they arrived, the two spacecraft separated. Armstrong called down to Houston, the Eagle has wings! The events of the next two and a half hours will be largely familiar thanks to the previous episode, but nothing ever goes quite as planned. Each mission had its own quirks, its own issues, and its own story to tell. Apollo 11 was no different. An hour and 24 minutes after Columbia and Eagle separated, Armstrong performed the DOI, Descent Orbit Insertion, lowering Eagle's periapsis to just 8 miles from the surface. The 30-second burn was executed with no issues, and the minor dispersions were easily handled by the small RCS thrusters. During this time, both spacecraft were on the far side of the moon, outside of communication range, giving mission controllers one last brief period to breathe and try to relax before the coming events. Overseeing mission control during the landing was elite flight director Gene Kranz. He and his team had taken the lessons of Apollo 1 to heart and were prepared to deliver on their promise of being tough and competent. Kranz had already instructed NASA security to lock the doors to the mission operations control room. No one would come or go during the intense period of powered descent and landing. Columbia emerged from behind the moon first and let Houston know that everything was going, as Collins put it, just swimmingly. A few minutes later, Eagle followed suit, and LMP Aldrin relayed to Houston a report on the DOI burn. At this point, a problem that would punctuate the landing popped up. Ratty calm. Telemetry and voice data were sent from Eagle to Houston via a steerable antenna on the back of the ascent module. It was typically left on the automatic setting, but could also be manually pointed. For much of the approach and landing, this link to Earth seemed incapable of maintaining a strong connection. This forced Houston and Eagle to repeat themselves multiple times, or even simply relay messages through Mike Collins on Columbia. But other than the communications issues, everything seemed to be going great. The DOI burn was perfect, and all other systems were behaving themselves. Capcom Charlie Duke called up that the Eagle was go for powered descent, and Collins relayed the message. 
I think it says something about how badly everyone wanted this landing to happen, that they were willing to give the go to start power descent, even though they couldn't directly communicate with the LEM. 102 hours, 32 minutes, and 55 seconds into the mission, Eagle passed 50,000 feet in altitude. Three seconds later, it fired the RCS thrusters to settle the propellant, and the descent stage engine activated. After the usual 28 seconds at low thrust as the computer determined the LEM's center of gravity, the engine ramped up to full throttle. The next time it turned off would be on the surface of the moon. Eagle began its descent to the moon, but the communications issues added an unexpected layer of tension to the moment. Buzz Aldrin later said that the intermittent nature of the problem was worse than a complete failure. They were never totally sure when they were in communications and when they weren't. The problem turned out to be a minor mistake in some computer software. When left in automatic mode, the antenna would attempt to maintain the strongest possible signal to Earth. But it had to be smart about it. If it tried to point right through the spacecraft, the signal would deteriorate immediately. To prevent this, a map of the LEM was built into the antenna's steering software, telling it where it should attempt to point. Unfortunately, the structure of the LEM had changed slightly over the missions, and someone forgot to let the software folks know. Thinking on the fly, Mission Control asked Armstrong to yaw the eagle slightly, twisting it to the side, and that allowed the antenna to make the connection. But this required Armstrong to fly the LEM at an unusual angle, and the distraction cost precious seconds. Yet another example of how important configuration control can be. Before rotating around to a face-up position, Armstrong used the LPD etching in his window to track known landmarks. They were all coming up slightly earlier than expected, indicating that they would land a few miles further downrange than initially planned. The cause of this long landing could be any number of things, but I like the theory proposed by landing flight director Gene Kranz. When Columbia and Eagle separated, a small amount of air was left in the docking tunnel. A valve wasn't quite in the right position, and not enough time was allowed for the air to vent. The resulting pressure was minuscule, but enough to give the Eagle a little kick as it set off for landing. The long landing wasn't necessarily a problem for this mission, since no precise landing was required, but it did mean they would be setting down in a less familiar location, which could, spoilers, would throw a last-minute curveball. Landing long wasn't ideal, but at least it was a common training scenario. What happened next caught everyone off guard. Six minutes into the descent, an error code appeared on the computer display. 1202. Neither crew member had any idea what a 1202 alarm was, so all they could do was relay the alarm to mission control and continue to focus on the task at hand. On the ground, the 1202 program alarm spurred a flurry of activity. Responsibility for interpreting the computer code fell on 26-year-old guidance officer Steve Bales. By fortunate coincidence, Bales was familiar with this code thanks to one of the last simulated landings before the real one. In that exercise, Mission Control had been presented with a 1201 alarm, similar to the 1202, and had called for an abort. It turned out that it was not required. The unnecessary mission failure stung, and it was sure to be in the minds of the Mission Controllers today. Bales knew that a 1202 program alarm indicated that the computer was being overworked and was being forced to drop lower priority tasks. He also knew that as long as it was intermittent, the mission could proceed. Years of design, engineering, and training, and the effort of hundreds of thousands of people had gotten them to this point. The fate of the landing was in his hands. He called out, We're, we're going that flight. And that was it. No one questioned him. Capcom told the crew they were go. 
Total time from the alarm to the go was 20 seconds. The cause of the alarm was the fact that the crew left the rendezvous radar on. I've seen this attributed to an error in the procedures, a mistake by the crew, or even the crew purposefully departing from the procedures in case they needed to return to the CSM early. I'm not sure the exact reason the rendezvous radar was left on is known, but that's what's causing the alarms. Without even knowing the nature of the alarm, Aldrin noticed that running certain programs would trigger it again. Adapting to the situation, he left certain displays off, such as the Delta H, trusting Mission Control would relay the number for him. The 1202 alarm would occur four times and was joined by a 1201 alarm. Bales reported that 1201 was the same type and the landing could continue. During all of this computer debugging, the Eagle was getting closer and closer to the surface. Armstrong found it challenging to use the landing point designator due to a gentle swaying of the limb induced by sloshing propellant. But even without the LPD, he could see that they were flying towards trouble. The computer was bringing them in for a landing on a large crater with menacing boulders strewn all about. Not an ideal landing site. Time to take over manual control. Armstrong flipped the dips rate switch, irrevocably taking control away from the computer. He immediately tilted further forward. The LEM never quite reached vertical, but by leaning less far back, Armstrong was able to maintain more horizontal velocity, floating Eagle across the boulder field. Since at this point in the landing they would normally be moving far more slowly, the horizontal velocity indicators had already been moved to a lower scale, topping out at less than 15 miles per hour. With the unexpected horizontal deviation of Armstrong's maneuver, Aldrin commented that they were pegged out, or the maximum the display can handle, for horizontal velocity. As Aldrin continued to call out the horizontal velocity and their vertical descent rate, Armstrong put his helicopter and LLTV training to good use, leaning further back to null out their forward velocity. 200 feet, four and a half down. The onboard voice recorders pick up Armstrong saying he's got a good spot. 100 feet, three and a half down. Another light illuminates on the control panel. Quantity. The computer believes there's 30 seconds left until the bingo call, at which point the LEM will have so little fuel, the commander will have to immediately decide to land now or abort. It turns out the computer called it a little early due to sloshing propellant, but there was definitely not fuel to spare. 75 feet. Houston calls up only 60 seconds of fuel remaining. 60 feet. Down two and a half. 40 feet. Down two and a half. Aldrin called out what might be my favorite quote of the entire landing. Picking up some dust. It's really happening. 30 feet. 20 feet. Charlie Duke imploringly calls up 30 seconds. It's now or never. Contact light. Armstrong shut down the descent propulsion system. Eagle dropped the last few feet and settled into ancient dust. But there was no time to admire the view. There was work to do. The LEM was still in attitude hold mode and was attempting to regain the last commanded attitude, firing its thrusters in vain against the surface. Aldrin called out the post-landing checklist as a reminder. ACA out of detent. Armstrong blipped the hand controller out of detent, setting a new commanded attitude. Aldrin set both guidance systems, pings and ags, to automatic, disabled the engine arm command, and input the ags instruction that informed it that they were on the surface. Charlie Duke radioed, We copy you down, Eagle. Neil Armstrong replied, Houston, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Next time, we will join Armstrong and Aldrin at Tranquility Base and do what we do best here, get into the weeds. Who goes out first? Do both guys go out at the same time? How does the spacesuit work? How do we get to see it live on TV? And how did they get home, fulfilling Kennedy's challenge? 
Next time, we traverse those last few feet down the ladder and firmly step into a new era. Oh, and Neil, you can say whatever you like for your first words on the surface. Just make sure you speak clearly. Since it's been a while since I've done one of these, and since I'm pretty sure I have your attention, I just wanted to take a quick moment to remind you that sharing the show with your friends, family, and internet strangers is a huge help to me. iTunes reviews, retweets, Facebook likes, and good old-fashioned word of mouth are the main way I get new listeners. So if you got a few seconds and want to help me spread this story to more people, I'd appreciate whatever support you can give. I also want to remind you that I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or just to say hi via email at jp at thespaceabove.us, via Twitter at spaceaboveus, or even on the Facebook page that I'm a little less good about checking, facebook.com slash thespaceaboveus. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. <laughs>